Space calling. You're listening to Wild Weasel, a podcast about wargaming news, wargaming ideas, and wargaming people. I'm Bruce Garrick, your host and electronic warfare technician. Welcome to Wild Weasel number 17, or if you've listened before, then welcome back. It's been a year since the last Wild Weasel, and for those of you who were worried that there would never be another Wild Weasel podcast, well, at least there's a rally in the valley. I've heard from a lot of people asking, is Wild Weasel dead? And my response to that is, well, no, I'm very much alive. I've missed doing this podcast, although I have to say that the reason for the hiatus is a good one for me, and that's that I've been playing a lot of games. One of the reasons I started Wild Weasel was that I wanted to participate more in the wargaming hobby at a time when I didn't have enough time to play all the games that I wanted. In the past year or two, I've met a lot of cool people and have been playing a lot of games. So whereas in the past, I might have played one game in a month and then recorded my thoughts about it, I played, just as an example, six games in one week recently. And that's with an opponent sitting across the table from me, not solitaire or on vassal. So the time I would have spent talking about games is really, well... Spent playing more games, which is great in the sense that the hobby is primarily about playing the games themselves, but it's also about sharing experiences, which is something I've missed doing. So the podcast isn't going anywhere. It will just have to adjust to my new schedule. One thing my new schedule does have time for is travel. I had a great time at Consum World Expo in Tempe, Arizona in May of this year, where I finally got to experience the full glory of unrestrained, hardcore Hex Encounter Wargaming. I really enjoyed walking by the monster games, especially the playtest map of Hungarian Rhapsody. I'm really looking forward to that. I saw Frank Chadwick playtesting the Middle Sea and meant to stop and chat him up about Thunder in the East, but I never did. I got to spend an enjoyable hour listening to Kevin Zucker talk about his plans for the Library of Napoleonic Battles. I picked up a used copy of what I think may still be the best North Africa game out there, Mark Simonich's The Legend Begins in the Terran Games edition, and got Mark to autograph it for me right there. I also had a fascinating dinner with Mark Herman, Nick Karp, Brian Train, and Harold Buchanan. And I also got to play some games. I spent a very enjoyable evening playing Pericles with the designer himself, as well as with Nick Karp and John Butterfield. John and I were the Spartans, while Nick and Mark were the Athenians. Nick was the aristocrat faction, which we all agreed was appropriate. We didn't finish that got late in the evening, but I think everyone had a good time. What I consistently find is that whenever I meet a designer whose games I've enjoyed so much over the years and who has single-handedly enriched my hobby experience so tremendously over decades, they always, whether they be John Butterfield, Mark Herman, or Mark Simonich, prove to be super nice, smart, unpretentious guys. I don't think I could ever express to any of these people just how much fun I've had over the years with their creations. So what do I say? Inevitably something like, hey, (laughs) I really love your games. But I hope they get just how much meaning there is behind those few words. The highlight of the convention, I think, besides meeting all these people in person, was the chance to play Empire of the Sun against Mark Herman. I absolutely adore that game, and have enjoyed Mark's commentary analysis several times while playing on Vassal against my friends Don and Rob. So being able to sit across from Mark and get trounced at his own game seemed like the next logical step. We started in 1942 so that I could try the Japanese offensive strategies that Mark had been coaching me on for several months via Skype. What ended up happening is probably something that I'll never see again, but the confluence of events was pretty astounding. I got a double Ugaki and ended up foregoing the Philippines early in order to hit Pearl Harbor twice, costing Mark all his carriers and giving me that precious minus one to U.S. political will, which led to an absolute meat grinder in Manila as Mark threw all his land-based air in to desperately avoid the morale hit for surrender. At which point I drew both Tojo and Tokyo Rose in the same hand, and combined with him failing progress of the war due to the crippled U.S. Navy, brought his political will to zero. And I won. Like I said, I don't think a particular series of events will ever be recreated, but I don't care, because I just needed it to happen one time. I'm looking forward to a longer game of Pericles with Mark one of these days. 
What I'm saying is, I had a great time, and I'm planning on going again next year. Maybe I'll have some Wild Weasel t-shirts for you. If you find me there, just tell me the code phrase, Harold says not to say war game. You'll get a free t-shirt out of it, while supplies last. I was also able to host my colleagues from the Three Moves Ahead podcast in my house in July of this year, and we produced a couple of podcasts about it, one being entirely devoted to our game of Pericles. I'll have a link to that on the podcast page if you haven't heard it yet. Oh, and instead of my usual rant after the interview, I have a couple. So this is going to be a bit of a long weasel. I hope you enjoy it. But first, the news. So, where do we start? Have they released any war games in the past year? The GMT sale just ended, and I have to say, I didn't buy anything this year, mostly because I already own pretty much everything GMT sells that's in print and that I want to play. The sale seems to have delayed the shipment of Volkorunki's Nevsky, which I still haven't received, which uh, is the game that I've been most looking forward to all year. Red Storm, a game kind of sort of using the Lee Brimcombe Wood downtown system, but designed by Doug Bush, is a close second. Man, what a super topic. And what a heavy rulebook. I spent a couple of days holed up reading that thing, but it was a wonderful experience. Also notable is Mark Simonich's Stalingrad 42, which just came out a few weeks ago in which I played, well, just recently. I'll have more thoughts on that one later. I'm not sure why I'm going through all this since you all get Gene's email newsletter anyway. One thing uh, that was not addressed in that newsletter is where the heck the reprint of Vance Von Bory's East Front series is. Look guys, it has been on Made the Cut forever. What do I have to do, go to Vance's house? Is there proofreading I need to volunteer for? Come on, let's get this show on the road. Okay, you guys can browse the GMT webpages on your own. Over at Legion War Games, the second edition of DNBN Foo, The Final Gamble, is out. I have to say, I spent a good part of January and February playtesting that thing, and I think it has definitely improved on the original. The main thing the second edition does is adjust the play balance, which may have tilted a bit too much towards Bruno Bigeau in the first edition. Uh, the artillery system is also less fiddly, and the Viet Minh get some extra tools and a more lenient morale schedule. One thing that impressed me about Kim Kanger is that he's an excellent developer of his own designs. He knew pretty much when to cut something and when to adjust it, which is a really difficult thing to do based on my experience with other games and designers. Uh, there are a number of new pre-order games available, including my favorite Tachanka about the Russian Civil War in the Ukraine. Seriously, how do you design a Russian Civil War game where the Whites have a chance of winning? I'm very interested in seeing this one. Check it out along with Kim Kanger's outstanding Ici C'est la France and the masterpiece Tonkin at www.legionwargames.com. By the way, uh, just to get back on the Kim Kanger train for a second, he's doing an Operation Barbarossa game. Uh, can you believe it? Holy heck. It's like Andrei Tarkovsky directing Star Wars. Uh, I got a sneak peek at the map, and you'll never believe it. Is that a teaser or what? Stay tuned. Kim is currently working on a game about exploring Africa called Heart of Darkness. And the Compass Games has a bunch of games coming out. Uh, they've done signature editions of uh, Fortress Europa, which is a game I didn't think uh, really lived up to the potential of the Russian campaign system back then because the scale was wrong for the subject. But, you know, a lot of people like it. Uh, they're also redoing Mark Herman's France 44, which was originally published by Victory Games. Uh, they're also publishing a game about North Korea called No Motherland Without uh, that was mentioned in The Last Wild Weasel. Oh my god, right? but which failed its Kickstarter. So I'm glad to see that it got picked up, and I'm interested to see what comes of that. Uh, the one game that they're doing that I'm very interested in is called Brotherhood and Unity, about the war in Bosnia from 1992 to 1995. It's from a designer I haven't heard of named Tomislav Cipcic, um, but I'm willing to cut a lot of slack for games about lesser-known subjects with designers who may have a story to tell. Um, but I'm guessing I'm assuming something just because the designer's name is Tomislav Cipcic. Um, this is one I'm going to buy sight unseen just because of the subject. I'll report back. Uh, Vento and Wovo Games has released the third volume in their 1941 series to go with Leningrad 41 and Moscow 41, and it's called, yeah, you guessed it, Kiev 41. I'm not sure what to make of the block style approach to these campaigns. I feel like there's an inherent ponderousness to the block style of games, which is part aesthetics and part area movement. Um, it just seems to always amalgamate and amorphize terrain. Is, it, is amorphize even a word? Well, anyway, it does it in a way that sort of flattens the narrative for me. Area movement is great for Stalingrad, and I think Don Greenwood inherently understood this when designing Turning Point Stalingrad. I'm not sure it works for everything, and I really don't like it for Monty's Gamble, but I'm willing to reserve judgment until I have played it. And no, I'm not saying that those are block games. I'm saying those are area movement games. 
um, back in California, Victory Point Games is no more. Well, that's not entirely true, but they've let their design staff go and are returning the rights for their hardcore war games to their designers. As a result, Bender in the East is going to be republished by GMT, and GMT will take over the publication of Frank Chadwick's European Theater of Operations System, which is basically a redo of the Europa system after it got really shrunk down by putting it in the dryer. That's totally unfair. It has nothing to do with the Europa system, but at least that's what I think. Uh, the Middle Sea is currently under playtest, and that will be the next game in the series uh, focusing on the Mediterranean. Um, at Multiman Publishing, I strongly suggest you take a look at Hungarian Rhapsody, the design about the 1944 Soviet drive into Hungary. Uh, I love OCS, even though, uh, or maybe because, it requires commitment. Uh, the pre-order price for Hungarian Rhapsody is $105. Uh, speaking of MMP, they did come through with the Red Factory's ASL product, and mine is sitting on my shelf, minus shrink wrap, but almost also minus any playings. If you feel like getting this to the table and are in the Portland area, uh, you can give me a call. Also, if you're listening to this before 11.59 p.m. on December 2nd, you should hit uh, pause on this podcast and then go straight to www.multimanpublishing.com to see what I think is the best Black Friday sale I've ever seen. Uh, I don't know, since ever? Uh, they put a lot of their catalog on sale at 50% off, which means that stuff like Beyond the Rhine and Last Blitzkrieg is under 100 bucks. Day of Days, about the British and Canadian D-Day landings, is just $133. You bet I bought that. The only thing that annoys me is that neither Brazen Chariots nor Baptism by Fire are on sale. Given the discounts on the rest, I'll forgive them this time. One interesting thing I found uh, recently was a site called Broken Ground Design. It's actually at brokenground.design, but just search for Broken Ground Design squad leader counters on Google and you'll find it. Uh, the gentleman is running, uh, that's running the site has redone counters for all the nationalities of ASL. And if you want a package of all the European theater nationalities, including the SS in black, it will only set you back $630 with shipping. Just look for the Grow Fast bundle. Also, if Grofaz isn't enough of a word from the past for you, how about John Southard? The designer of classics such as Tokyo Express and Carrier is currently designing a game called Carrier Battle Philippine Sea, based on the Carrier system, to be published by Compass Games. I think Carrier is one of the most innovative and groundbreaking designs I have ever seen, but unlike the other groundbreaking con design concepts, it never got adapted or expanded, probably because it was so sophisticated. So, who better to design a follow-on than the original designer? Like enemy action or dens, the follow-on is probably best left in the hands of the original chef. You can see the page on BoardGameGeek, uh, where I'll have a link on that uh, podcast page, where John is posting about the playtest. And the last thing I have to report is that I have spent a fair amount of time recently playtesting a new Vietnam game at the very operational level that has impressed me with the designer's skill at sussing out the essential bits of history from reams of available research and tailoring his design to it. It also has some spectacular artwork. When I can talk about it more, I will. I highly recommend it. And that's the news. So for tonight's show, we have Waypoint Journalist and Jack of All Trades in Gaming and also host of the Three Moves Ahead podcast, which you may have heard of, Rob Zachney. Rob, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this. Yeah, so there, there are a lot of things I want to talk to you about. Um, but I just want to establish here that uh, you and I are from different generations. So um, I went up San Juan Hill with Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, you were born about 12 days ago. Uh, so there is a gap in between us. Um, so you weren't part of that... Um, that grognard uh, generation from the 1970s, but you have played a surprisingly large and wide range of, uh, of war games. How did that come about? Uh, I think it's a few things. One is just that, you know, when I, I think I must have been four or five years old and I saw uh, Patton, the George C. Scott film, hmm. and... Mm -hmm. You know, it's a it's a great film. It's deeply compelling, but also uh, it's a little bit World War II tank porn mm -hmm. in, at, at times, oh, and yeah. that got me curious about not just World War II, but also about generals and generalship. Right? Mm -hmm. Like that is a movie that is making the argument that this is this is a man who had qualities who that made him uh, a special and outstanding leader for the time, and that led me to the question of, well, what what did a general even do? Right? Okay. What does a general do? Mm -hmm. 
And I think that's a question that a lot of war games are trying to model answers to as well. And whatever, what, what is commander's role? Uh, what are commander's limitations? What does it mean across different eras? Mm-hmm. And so I started uh, looking f- at war games as a little bit of a way to explore my growing interest in history, mm-hmm. but from more of an, a first-person perspective, almost, okay. right? Like, it's one thing to read an account of a campaign, but to me, at least, as a kid, it felt like it was somehow more authentic or more enlightening to almost, like, put yourself in the shoes of a commander on the ground and sort of look at the uh, look at the problems they faced. But... There was also the undeniable fact that I was a kid and video games were kind of hypnotic and cool to me. And so, you know, one day my, my dad took me to Babbage's and uh, it was one of those, you know, classic parental deals, right? You get one game uh, and what's it going to be? And uh, it, was, it was really close between V for Victory Market Garden or Field, uh, Fields of Glory. And I'm a kid. Fields of Glory had like, for the time, amazing graphics. The mm-hmm. other, you know, V for Victory looked very much like I think what a, what an early '90s PC war game looks like in your imagination. Right. But F- uh, Fields of Glory was like miniature soldiers marching across what at the time seemed like stunningly realistic terrain. Yes. And I had to go for that. Okay. And uh, so you're so that's where you played with your uh, toy soldiers because it sounds to me like you'd never you weren't of the generation that had the little plastic bazooka men that you took out in the backyard and and shot uh, each other with. <laughs> oh, I played uh, I, I played with army men a, a fair bit. Uh, I've actually still got the dining room ta- the uh, the the coffee table that mm-hmm. we had in my parents' old place. I, I have it now oh. uh, where I used to sort of stage my, uh, my my army men battles, and I think at one point. God, you just made me remember something. Uh-huh. I was starting to get frustrated with um, scale in Army Men. Uh-huh. I wanted, like, I didn't want to have like individual soldiers fighting at each other. Uh, I was like, it, well, what I'm reading about are battalions and companies and such. Uh-huh. And so I taped little paper notes to the base of all my different Army Men. Oh, there you go. Denoting what they were that they were standing in for. So, like, a machine gunner was like a machine gun company. Okay. And that was, like, how I sort of scaled up. So I guess that was probably my earliest, like, I went right into war game design, or at least an attempt at it. Yeah. Well, you should have gotten into miniatures then, sounds like. Yeah, you know, by the time um, miniatures was such an expensive hobby, I, yeah, I think, and it still is, but yes. I, I think there was it's time intensive a point. Too. Yeah, it's it's time intensive, and I, and I think there must have been a point where this went from something that was like accessible and fun for kids to get into or young, or young folks to get into, and became the hobby of well-heeled professionals yeah. right or, and, or or at least or at least people who had a lot of free time because i i yeah. i think that at some point the uh if you're that well-heeled you just have people paint mm. them for, for you because uh yeah there's just a, that's a, that's just so much time to do to do that uh i fell into really the crowds that looked down on their noses on people who didn't oh. paint their own minis though so that oh, was probably a okay. mistake like because all the great napoleonics rule sets appear to be or at least a lot of them uh, appear to be minis uh, right. rule sets. They, they, many of them, many of them uh, grew up from that. Uh, I think uh, people were trying to find a way of not having to have all those uh, Napoleonic miniatures. But uh, so, so you played uh, Fields of Glory, but uh, you, you looked at V for Victory, which is kind of odd that uh, a kid who hadn't played, you know, war games had even gave thought to those little chits. And you've been coming back to those chits, you know, over and over again. Um, we've you you play now. I want to make it clear. You play uh, Euro board games as well, right? Yeah, a fair okay. bit. Yeah, and things like Pandemic Legacy, et cetera, et cetera. But mm-hmm. uh, but you and I have actually played quite a few uh, war games, like war war games together with chits encounters and things like that. And um, what do you? What is it about those things now that you're not a child that is compelling? Well, I think there's a few things. Uh, one is that especially more modern uh, tabletop war games have increasingly interesting ways of modeling the conflicts they're involved with like I don't know it's it's a strange thing but I play one of these I play one of these games and a lot of times it also feels a little bit like 
I've just read the thesis to an interesting book on a subject I'm interested in, hmm, right? Okay. Like it's the hmm. the intro, the the introductory sec- section, explaining what are the salient features here, what are what are we trying to do, right? Uh, and so I think that is part of it is that a lot of modern war games uh, have novel mechanics and uh, depictions of different conflicts, even very familiar ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're, you're still finding new ways to get around that old question of scale, uh, right. right? Like, I think the last time you and I uh, hung out, we were looking at World War One games, and there was yep. a great three was ahead on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I remember you showed a old war game that was covering uh, basically the... Battle of the Frontiers all the way through to the Marne. Mm-hmm. Right, uh, yes. Is the way to put yeah. it. Uh, home, is, home Before the Leaves Fall, yes. That's an old Clash of Arms game. Right. And it is massive. And it is basically, it is an attempt to like solve the problem of scale by simply modeling as much as you possibly can, right? Like right, pushing right. the limits of your tabletop space and your time and attention mm-hmm. and just having you go through the entire opening stages of that campaign uh, almost like brigade by brigade or regiment mm-hmm. by regiment. And I think what I find really interesting now is that a lot of war games have sort of let that, they've ceded that territory to, they ceded that ter- territory years ago to PC. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so now what you find are slightly more, uh, I don't know, slightly, slightly more clever uh, mechanics to sort of like condense a complicated historical interaction mm-hmm. into a few, few simple rules that also recast your understanding of the of the referent object, right? Right. And you like that. Oh, very much so. I remember when we were looking at um oh was it uh Empire of the Sun? Yes. Mark Herman. Mm-hmm. Uh when you sort of broke down for me the way it forces you to island hop by imposing incredibly high risk on staging massive long distance invasions mm-hmm. right. uh, from one jumping off point to the next. Uh, that's that struck me as pretty brilliant, right? Because it mm-hmm. wasn't forcing you to do it by like forcing you to handle a bunch of like loading, unloading penalties right. or movement points. It right. Is... There's no rule that that says that you can't do this. You can do it. It just can backfire hugely because of considerations. Yeah, the the, the chance that this will blow up in your face spectacularly is much much higher. Um, right. And. That is incredibly uh, exciting to me, especially because when I go back and I look at a lot of the PC space, at least, it still feels like a lot of the PC games I play are maybe still cherishing that home before the leaves fall model, Mm -hmm. right? Are still servicing that idea of, well, what if we did make you load up every single transport? And have it have a you know disembarkation schedule for mm-hmm. for an invasion that yeah. has to be fun, right? <laughs> and I think when we played uh, you know Gary Gary Grigsby's War in the West mm-hmm. uh, last year, yeah, I learned just how fun how not fun that could be. Right. Well, I mean I, th- that brings me though to a, to a question of presentation. We were actually talking about uh, presentation briefly in an, in an email exchange that we had. Um, I feel like. It, and correct me if if you feel differently, but I feel like there's a, an inherent um, sort of resistance in the PC or the just call it digi- the digital space uh, to abstract representation. I, there's a game that we both I think really liked or like or liked called Unity of Command, which mm-hmm. I used to recommend to people as being a really good intro sort of to war gaming. If you if you're into strategy gaming, I wouldn't just jump into it, but you know. It, if you're into strategy gaming and you want to sort of do a historical war game, look at this game called Unity of Command. You've got these, you know, bobbleheads and 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 all these things in a very sort of quirky presentation that actually works great um, to show certain things about supply and and, and con- command control. Um, but now, if you look at the new uh, screenshots yes. and uh, things of of Unity of Command, I think I actually seeing looking at Whitepoint, um, they're just these these sort of you know. Uh, really detailed toy soldiers again, yes. Uh, which is something that I think the um, you know back in the Talonsoft days was happening. And and uh, why do you, why is that? What what what's happening in the in the digital space that that makes people have to make pretty little depictions of things because they can? I think that so. I think with Unity of Command, I think it 
my sense has always been that it is a bit of because we can, right? Like I think Unity of Command, for instance, the the new one that they're making, looks like it has lovely terrain graphics, right? Like it, it, like there is a degree of uh, that game that game looking very attractive and inviting, and that probably does have a bearing on how marketable it is, right? Like one of the first things I would have to tell people when I'm pushing Unity of Command one in their hands is. Don't be put off by the odd little bust soldiers, hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, right? Like, there's there's so much to this game, but like mostly what you're looking for are uh, strength points and uh, you know what color is the map in the section, right? What are the right. what are the places you can cut lines of supply? That's sure. that's the vivid stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think there's an element of feeling like you need to compete with, you know. Company of Heroes, perhaps, is, okay. a, is a decent example, or, or right. at least being or needing to be in in that ball game. I think there's a little bit of an attempt to sort of recapture the magic of mm-hmm. what we remember Panzer General Two right. and Panzer General One to mm-hmm. be. Yeah. Um, but I also feel like something, and I think this is what sort of prompted an exchange we had a, the other week. Mm-hmm. I, I think. A lot of times in the PC wargame space, it's either you're going to have a very little representation, literal representation of toy soldiers on a uh, lovingly detailed battle map, or you're going to go completely the other direction, mm-hmm. and it's going to be very simple map art and almost certainly NATO counters. Yeah. And and often not even particularly well presented. There's a lot of different ways you can do NATO counters, right? There's mm-hmm. a lot of different ways you can present that information. Right. A lot of times what you're seeing at best is sort of the operational art of war model of, you know, here's, here's the NATO counter. Uh, here's a bunch of secondary information like packed onto it. And uh, that's very overwhelming if you haven't already sort of learned that visual language. And even as somebody who has learned that, it can be tough to figure out, like, okay, well, what is this game presenting to me on this mm-hmm. particular... Like, you know, what, like there are numbers next to this inventory icon, but what do they mean in this game as opposed to the others I've played? Right, right. Uh, so I think that is something that pushes war games toward these extremes of uh, literal representation or highly abstract mm-hmm. and rather plain-looking... Uh, like NATO symbology. Right. Well, I mean, the, I think one of the things you also point out was that there are, in the in the tabletop space, uh, designers, uh, graphic designers, are doing a nice job of moving away or at least taking those NATO rep- representations and, and doing things with them or, you know, uh, putting numbers in different ways. The, the Dien Bien Phu, the final gamble, mm-hmm. which I showed you, I think, last year, um, you know, a lot of those counters just have one number on them. Uh, but that number is very versatile. There are other things that, you know, the, you don't have to have a movement factor because everybody has the same movement. Um, and I think what Kim Kanger did was just really take the look of a game and say, okay, we're going to make this look really good on the table, and then we'll figure out how to present the information uh, with that in mind. And I feel like that's something that more and more board game designers could think about since the... Um, the digital designers aren't necessarily thinking about how to present the information. They're trying to present the presentation. Just look, look how great I can make this look. And then thinking, oh, well, um, now I have to just kind of stick all the mechanics in and, and hide stuff because the computer's going to handle it all anyway. So you don't, you don't have to have, there's no, there's no, um, you know, sort of, uh, uh, mechanical requirement to, to know how the game works. You just make a tank and you click on it and it shows a bunch of numbers uh, in, a, in a sort of Gary Creeksby fashion. Yeah, I think there's an element of, um, you know, when I talk to board game designers, I feel like that entire discipline is very tied into uh, graphic design, right? Like literally you can't make a, you can't make a board game, uh, especially in the modern market, without having... Uh, access to people who have at least considered problems of presentation and and visual design and i think in the pc space what you tend like one of the reasons again you see these extremes either you have a thing that is very like programmer led and it is about can we get the system to work and administer itself and function 
Or you have something that goes completely the other way where we do have these resources, let's spend them. Like we got we, we gotta make sure people know that this is a high quality game. And so let's pour it into models. Uh, and, I, and I think in a weird way, just the, 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 the medium and the current economics of tabletop force people toward a, I think, happier compromise uh, when it comes to visual design. But that's, that's, uh, that's me sort of spitballing based on people I talk to. Okay, well, what, what, what are you looking for? Like, let's say, let's say you're out there looking at a game. Uh, are you looking at just the, are you looking at the presentation? Or are you looking primarily at the historical question it's trying to answer? Are you looking for it to have a theme? What, 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 what draws you to say, I want to play this game? Bruce, mm-hmm. let's, uh, let's sit down and uh, spend four days playing these games. Yeah, I think when it comes to tabletop, probably it's subject matter more than anything because there's so much, like this is the other part of the, the puzzle. As my interest in history has sort of changed and evolved, the things I've gotten really interested in have sort of diverged from like, you know, being a kid who read lots of Stephen Ambrose yeah. to somebody who's read way too many uh, Christopher Duffy books profiling mm. uh, mid-18th century armies, right? Okay. Like, that's, mm-hmm. that's who I am now. Okay. And that is not something that's going to be serviced in the PC space by and large, but if there's some esoteric conflict or campaign that I have a particular interest in, there's a very good chance there's a board game and a decent one uh, covering that, and and so what I tend to look look for are those games that uh, are that are that are trying to get across something specific about a topic I'm specifically interested in. I think this is why the the coin series was so fascinating to me because like I don't need I'm not necessarily interested in the idea of okay well let's let's simulate Vietnam uh, the, you know the American campaigns in Vietnam at a squad or company level, right? And have them shoot it out with the, uh, you know, NVA. And I, like that, that's fine. That I'm sure there, 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 I'm sure there's plenty of great games about that. But that doesn't capture what interests me particularly okay. about the American intervention in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And so like, you know, Fire on the Lake does right. uh, capture some important military and political dynamics that in, inform my interest in the topic. So that stuff attracts me. Yeah. On well, that's the, that. Go ahead. I want you to finish. Then I got a thing to say. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say on the PC, it's a little it, on the PC. It's just harder right now in general, because you're not going to have that same diversity of topic. So each time it's getting a little bit harder for, to convince me that like, mm, I definitely want to play this game about Casserine Pass, right? I definitely want to play this game about uh, Barbarossa. That That is becoming a harder sell because I'm, both the topics are sometimes feel a little played out to me, and also there aren't quite as many like novel solutions, I feel, in terms of game design to, to make, to sort of spark new new interest in these. Okay, so the, the fact that these games have a, a thesis is important to you, though, right? Because the best games, I think, do have a thesis. Yeah, yeah. Where, where, is, where the uh, the way you play it and the, what what ends up happening um, is a uh, is a sort of idea about it's an interpretation of the history. And there was a there's a thread. Um, I think Mark Walker um, sent out a tweet. It was a thread on Twitter about you know which do you like better, operational or tactical? And it sounds like you come down very hard on the operational side because. There's an interesting question to answer. Could this campaign have been fought differently? Could it have been, you know, one with different resources allocation, different resource allocations, different different uh, strategies? Whereas the tactical is just sort of a, a sort of a, a, an army men shoot each other kind of situation. A bit, though. I think uh, if you have an interesting tactical thesis, I'm mm-hmm. all ears, right? So I think a war game I return to a lot. One of my all-time class, like it's a classic series, but my, my favorite of the series is close combat to a bridge too far. Okay. And that is about as tactical as you can get. You're moving individual machine gun teams and positioning them in the corners of houses. But while it is about having the army men shoot it out on uh, a, uh, on sort of a virtual minis table. Yeah. 
the game is also about just conservation of morale, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's true. Whose army is going to be the last army to respond to command in this situation versus which army is going to become combat ineffective midway through because possibly because you screwed up. And at that point, you got my attention again because then it's not just it's not just I don't want to. This will sound very dismissive, uh, and I, I don't mean it to, but it's not just like endless series of combat resolution tables being rolled and like okay did we we hit the we hit the flank on that panzer four with a you know 75 millimeter gun did it go through um and that's not particularly interesting to me but a game that is digging into that okay well what did it like how could you make sure that that gun crew had the nerve to wheel out from a cover and take that shot like that then that becomes an interesting story to me okay well then i <clears throat> i'm wondering now if you, if you really like close combat uh, to a market garden then uh gosh i think we need to play uh there's so, so many things we need to play but we need to play uh, mark semenich's holland 44 because i think that it has gotten the market garden rubric so right i mean it's just it's amazing how good that game is um it, we're telling the story of Market Garden. So uh, I think that's going to have to be on the list. But I also want to play uh, Empire of the Sun with you. What what game, as, as, as my last question for you, what game or games do you have your eye on that you, you're thinking, man, if, if, if I could just get somebody to sit down, somebody to sit down with me and play this, this is the game I want to play. Yeah, I think uh, probably right now Empire of the Sun is at the top of my list. I've, I've started getting more into the Pacific Theater, particularly okay. after reading uh, Neptune's Inferno. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, great book. And uh, Pacific Crucible by Ian Toll. Uh, those, yeah. the, the, reading those sort of back-to-back really brought home for me. I think in a lot of historiography, there's a tendency to present the Pacific Theater as a foregone conclusion from beginning mm-hmm. to end. Mm-hmm. Uh, but those were two books that really drove home how much was still in the balance, at least how the early phases of that war would go, would go, um, and really brought out what was interesting about the conflict beyond just sort of the raw comparison of uh, material. So that's that's a game I'm very interested in playing. Uh, I, I think the other, uh, the, probably the other game that I sort of have my eye on right now is um, I'm very curious about. This the follow up to Flashpoint campaigns. Uh, this is on PC, right? Ah, okay. Uh, there's there's a new Cold War uh, war game from the Flashpoint campaign studio uh, called, I believe, it's Armor Brigade, and uh, that's probably the the other thing that, that I've sort of got my eye on is that a lot a, a lot of these more modern uh, this is from On Target Simulations, but a lot of these more modern war games on PC. Uh, they had that you do find games with interesting interesting systems there, uh, but also I'm just finding playing against AI less and less satisfying. Well, the the, the what you're descri- describing there, Empire of the Sun and uh, and the Flashpoint campaign system are two completely different. I mean, they're two completely opposite ends of the spectrum. One is mm-hmm. the the very uh, deliberate and thoughtful abstraction of as many things as possible so as to highlight only the most important things about the, the theater that you sort of directly control, whereas Flashpoint Campaigns is very much about making you a commander that just sends orders and then sees how your troops follow them and you have much less control over the sort of, uh, you know, who goes where once you sort of command. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, you know, the Flashpoint campaign stuff and uh, Command Ops 2, I think, is is interesting for, for some similar reasons. Uh, command and control problems at the tactical level, like, do tend to interest me a lot. I'm also interested, and, and this is something that I think, like, Flashpoint campaigns does very well. Uh, and I'm not sure I've seen as many tabletop games try to tackle this. You, you can maybe correct me, though. I am interested in how games try to model doctrine, right? Like, uh, and, and this becomes particularly of note in hypothetical Cold War combat because basically all we have is what equipment did both sides have and what was their doctrine? The two sides never fought, so we can't actually say with any definitive certainty how it would have gone. But what we can say is here's what they had available. Uh, here is what the two, what, what the combatants were sort of built to do. And I think... 
again, just in exploring those spaces, what becomes really interesting to me is this idea of mastering these asymmetries and adapting your sort of uh, gut level tactical knowledge, discarding that and trusting in the combination of doctrine and equipment, right? If you if you try to play, if you try to play Red 4 uh, using just standard tactics, trying to conserve personnel, material, and just do this methodically, you're not going to succeed. That's not what those armies are built for. Uh, likewise, if you try to go toe-to-toe, uh, you know, as NATO, you're eventually going to be swamped. And I think it's very cool the way those games push you out of the sort of dull standard operating procedure uh, that, you know, a lot of tactics games can leave you hanging out in and push you into learning different ways of, of playing. Yeah, well, the the on the tabletop space, uh, Frank Chadwick did a great job with that. Whoa, gosh, thirty three years ago with um, with uh, Assault, the Assault series. What he had was the uh, is, uh, it required a lot of record keeping, but it had you know command points that you assigned. It's basically it's basically he tried to do flashpoint uh, campaigns uh, before computers could do that. But uh, you had a you had a certain number of of uh, you know command points for the for the Soviets. That you could, tr- I mean, you could try to tell individual, you know, platoons, you, hey, go get behind this guy, go do this. But you didn't have enough command points to do that for your entire force. But mm-hmm. if you just told a whole, you know, formation, hey, here's your battle doctrine, go do this, you could command a whole bunch more, you know, units. Um, but it required to sort of do everything en masse. And as as you moved everything en masse, things became sort of vulnerable, right? But you couldn't tell individual units to take cover, that kind of thing, because you just didn't have that level of command and control. So Frank Chadwick had that covered uh, a long time ago. Um, and I think that as uh, I'd be interested, we should do we should do a three moves ahead on um, on the new Flashpoint game. Uh, I, should, I need to get that and, and, and check it out. But we also what we need to do is we need to play Empire of the Sun. You've convinced me now that that's that that's the next thing we have to do. We have to do that. I think we should do that on Vassal. Uh, it's yeah. a great, it's a great uh, module, um, and uh, I even uh, played it a little bit with Mark Herman. He was learning how to use the uh, the live vassal module, and he likes it. Uh, the way it presents the the way it presents the zones, the air zones of influence is great. You can just look at a uh, at a glance uh, where things go. So, all right, you've convinced me. Uh, we're gonna do uh, we're gonna do the uh, the Empire of the Sun uh, bonanza. I've got to get some free time, but then we're we're gonna schedule that, and then we can do a we can do a three moves ahead about that. So all right, I look forward to it. Cool. Well, Rob, thank you so much for uh, for um, coming on, and uh, we will. I mean, I'll I'll be talking to you uh, about a bunch of things in the future, um, but uh, I'm glad we were able to share this with the Wild Weasel audience. Thank you for yeah. coming. Thanks for having me. People who know me well have commented that I often seem like a contrarian. What they mean is that they'll have a conversation with me in which I take one position, only to try to argue them out of that same position in some later conversation. I think this might be a product of my college education at the University of Chicago, where I was taught, perhaps questionably, that the best way to understand someone's position was to have an argument with them about it. So, some people have made mention that they have occasionally found me argumentative. I'd prefer the term, one who seeks understanding but I can see how sometimes my questioning can be misunderstood. This, though, is not one of those times, because I think my intent in this next bit is crystal clear. I was really annoyed a little while back to hear a prolific game videographer throw shade on the state of wargaming. It really bugged me for some reason, and I decided to respond. So, here it is. Back in August, which I know in internet time is another millennium ago, Marco Wargamer posted a review of Undaunted Normandy, which is a deck-building Normandy game. It sounds pretty cool, and I'm glad he enjoyed it. He made a video about how much he enjoyed it, which is nice to see. But then he decided to make some comments about wargaming in general that really rubbed me the wrong way. And because I have a podcast, I decided to respond to them. Marco starts the video by saying how much he likes the design of Undaunted Normandy. Fine and fair enough. But then he goes off on a bit of a rant that I feel compelled to respond to. Let's join him at about the 12-minute mark of his 21-minute video. I'll have some comments. Let's listen. The best war game that I played in a long time. I loved it so much. It's better than a lot of war games that I played. And it also scores high among war games that recently I haven't played. 
what by which I mean. There have been a couple of games recently, war games, that I tried learning and maybe I'm becoming old, maybe my brain doesn't work as much, maybe I'm just more impatient. I gave up. Those were complicated, convoluted rule books and just rules that, again, I'm too old to, to really worry about, really uh, feel passionate about. Uh-oh. Marco, you should have stopped right there. Because you start talking about how maybe it's you, you're getting old, you don't feel passionate about this stuff anymore. That's fine. But once you say that, you should maybe get the insight from yourself that it is all about you and that none of the following is necessary. I don't know how a game can be better than a game you haven't played unless you're forming opinions about stuff you haven't played based solely on your own feelings about how stuff you personally prefer now is better. Which is okay. But the comments you make later don't logically follow from that. Let's keep listening. Uh, there was a war game I tried to learn in which you put a counter on your vehicles to indicate that the vehicle has started moving but is not moving fully yet. And later you replace that counter with a counter that says that the vehicle is moving. I don't have time for that anymore. Marco, you don't have time for that? You have more free time than anyone I know. I went to your YouTube channel and counted 50 game review videos that you've posted in the last month. 50. I assume that means you've also played those 50 games. You obviously have plenty of time. You just choose to use it for different things than other people. That's your right, obviously. But I fail to see how putting a counter on a vehicle to indicate that it has started moving but is not moving fully yet is any more or less ridiculous than your comment that in the game Pegasus, when you think you have certain patterns, you grab the Pegasus and you, quote, squish it. I know that's a thing because I watched your video. My point is not that squishing a Pegasus is dumb, but that it's exactly as not dumb as putting a counter on a vehicle that has started moving. Um, this has to do with a more general thing. I mean, I'm very happy to see that board gaming as a hobby is expanding every day, becoming bigger, becoming better. But board gaming is being left behind, is remaining niche, and actually is becoming more and more on a small of a small niche. I see. You're looking out for war gaming. You're like it's a benevolent angel or something. Seriously, why is the size of the wargaming hobby bothersome to you? Leaving aside the very debatable idea that in a growing board gaming hobby, the relatively smaller size of the historical wargaming genre is in itself and any kind of a problem, what do you mean exactly when you say that this is the kind of game that the hobby needs? Who the hell are you to say what the hobby needs? Are you its parole officer? You gave yourself away when you said that this is the kind of game that I love from which the only supportable conclusion is that this is the kind of game that you need. Leave the rest of the hobby out of it. This is not just the kind of game that I love, it is the kind of game that the hobby needs. It is the kind of game that is simple, intuitive, it has smart mechanics, it has smooth gameplay, it has a nice pace, it is not concerned with a lot of details that allows seem in many cases to be there just for the sake of it. Just for the sake of it? Now you're imputing intention to game rules? Marco, the reason that a lot of war games have detailed rules is that the detailed portrayal of historical elements is precisely what fires many gamers' imaginations. We like those detailed rules, and presumably you did too at one point, because we have a deep interest in the history behind them, and detailed rules, when done well, are very evocative. If you lost the appetite for that kind of thing, that's your right. But that's on you. It is the kind of game that I could use to introduce a teenager to war gaming. It's the kind of game that I can use to introduce my daughters, currently 9 and 7, to war gaming in a couple of years. And I cannot use those games that would have been okay in 1975, 1985, when there weren't many other options, where that was the standard. And, and that was it. Uh, now there are just so many better options, taste changes, people want games that are, that are simpler, that are more user-friendly. And I see nothing against that. I still like the complicated war game from time to time, but that's just not my cup of tea anymore. I've got a story for you about teaching games, but before I tell you, I want to call you out for insincerity, because that's something that I absolutely hate. Hey, that's on me. Maybe I should start a crusade about insincerity? Nah. 
let me just play this clip where you claim that you aren't making any judgments, and then at the very end, make one all the same, and make it really sneeringly to boot. And if your favorite games are Advanced Squad Leader and Starfleet Battles, and maybe you think they're a little too simple for you, that's fine. Please enjoy those. No judgment from me. But you are the last generation that will ever play the kind of game. That is a fact. The only answer I have to that one is really, Marco, go fuck yourself. Because you keep going on and on about how maybe this is just you getting old, yada yada, let me leave you with a story a friend of mine told me. Now, he's a real Hex Encounter War gamer, and I recommended a game to him, like I have to many others, on this podcast, called Yin Bian Fu The Final Gamble. I think it's a great game, but it certainly isn't a beginner war game by any means, and I suspect, Marco, it would almost surely fail your introductory criteria that you think the wargaming hobby so desperately needs to embrace in order to save it from itself. You know what my friend did? He bought a copy, and then he took it to his 85-year-old dad, who has never played war games, and asked him to play with him. And you know what? His dad said, absolutely. And my friend taught him the game, and they played it. And in spite of my friend's dad not knowing what a combat results table was, or how many counters you need to put on a vehicle to decide that it has started moving but isn't quite moving yet, he picked it right up. And after a little bit, he was merrily moving counters and evaluating the best way to salt a French strong point and how to allocate his artillery. And after they were done, his 85-year-old father built my friend a beautiful wooden dice tower so he could have it for his other games. His dad is a hobbyist woodworker, and after my friend showed him some pictures of a dice tower, which his father had never seen before since he doesn't play board games, he nevertheless sat down and worked out how to make one for a bunch of online pictures. I've seen the dice tower firsthand, and it's beautiful. So there's a guy who's 85 years old and can not only understand the rules to a complicated game of a type he has never seen before or really is that interested in, he was happy to play it with his son, because sharing with your children doesn't stop when you turn 85 and they turn 60. And what I wish you could take from that story is that the same enjoyment that you got out of playing Pegasus with your two daughters is of a piece with my friend's sharing of a fiddly old game with hexagons with his dad. In both cases, it's people doing things with people they love, what those people love. Stop telling us that we're loving the wrong thing. By the way, I have just one further piece of advice for you, Marco. Don't tell Harold that you said war game. It's easy to mistake things that you like for things that other people should like. But when you're a designer, you make the games you want to play. Mark Simonich is one of my favorite designers, probably because of when I was introduced to his designs. When I graduated from college, I went into investment banking, which immediately cut my free time for wargaming from infinite to zero. But my love for wargaming wasn't diminished at all. At that time, Mark Simonich had started his own game company called Rhino Games and produced two beautifully produced designs called The Legend Begins, about the campaign in North Africa, and Campaign to Stalingrad, about... Well, okay, it's obvious. Mark was, and is, a graphic designer, so his designs had an amazing look to them that seemed like the next logical step on from Redmond Simonson's pioneering work, but was also a talented game designer. I said earlier on the podcast, I think The Legend Begins may still be the single best North Africa game there is, although Craig Bissink's Romulo Desert would have something to say about that. But whatever the case is, Mark's games became a kind of safety blanket for me by telling me there was still a wargaming hobby when I was afraid it wasn't going to be around for much longer. You know, this is around 1990-1992, when things were looking very dicey for the hobby. I think I had campaigned to Stalingrad set up on a table for weeks, if not months, just wishing I had time to play it, or someone to play it with. It seemed like such a clean, elegant design. Which is why I was interested to read Mark's designer's notes to the redesign of Ukraine 43, in which he said he changed the game into something that he would want to play, rather than the complex move-reaction-move beast that the original game was. I played Ukraine 43 a few weeks ago, that's the second edition, with a friend, and was immediately taken with the elegance and historical flavor that it retained, yet allowed us to finish an entire scenario in a comfortable morning and afternoon. So I was very hopeful when I got my copy of Stalingrad 42 recently, which I suspected would be a similar reimagining of Campaign to Stalingrad. And you know, I was exactly right. A friend of mine had me over to his house to play the fall blouse scenario, which he completed over a long day, including breakfast, a long lunch break, and some scotch at the end. 
It was only afterward that I came home and pulled out campaign to Stalingrad to look at the rules, the counters, the maps, and compared them to Stalingrad 42. But even though it was a product from the world of Motorola flip phones, it felt strangely familiar and comforting. It's remarkable how the design of Stalingrad 42 seems more refined, as the components are, but the overall structure seems wonderfully familiar. The thing I liked about Campaign to Stalingrad was how it presented you with possibilities that stretched into an almost impossible wilderness, meaning the Caucasus and the Kuban Steppe, while making it almost impossible for you to get there. This is the kind of imaginative escape that I've looked for in war games since I was 12. I love how Mark Simnich has preserved the sense of wonder almost 30 years later. I'm not going to usually digress from games in this podcast, but for personal reasons, I'd like to recommend two new books that have been published in the past two months, both about the Polish campaign of 1939. One thing the countries not named Britain, Canada, France, or Germany need is advocates who read and write the language. Poland, for decades, has had Norman Davies, who, as far as I'm concerned, is basically an honorary Pole. I think you can have those, by the way. When I went to South Korea for the 2002 World Cup, the South Korean team was coached by Hus Hiddink, a Dutchman who guided them to third place, which represented their first advancement out of the group stage. The South Koreans wanted to give him South Korean citizenship, but the South Korean constitution prohibited anyone from attaining South Korean citizenship without being of South Korean ethnicity. So, the South Korean parliament voted to make him an exception and gave him free travel on the national airline, KAL, to boot. I'd like to see the Polish government give Norman Davies the same treatment, including free flights on lot. Okay, so we're talking about books. Roger Morehouse has just published a book called First to Fight, and he gave a great interview on the BBC History podcast called History Extra that I'd encourage everyone to listen to. I'll have a link on the podcast page. It really tries to give the Polish perspective, which you have to admit has been copiously documented in the Polish language, but as far as most people are concerned, doesn't exist. I finished the book recently, and it's excellent. I recommend that you give it a try if you have any interest at all in the subject. There's another book called Case White, published just last month and written by a guy named Robert Forczyk, who has written about the Eastern Front extensively in English. His best books, in my opinion, are a two-volume series called Tank Warfare on the Eastern Front, in which he interrogates past and current scholarship with some trenchant observations that seem to be borne out by sources. The only problem is that I'm not sure he reads Russian. I could be wrong. I haven't finished it yet, but will give my opinion on the next Wild Weasel, which should be next year. If you listen to this podcast, then you probably know about my series of videos about war games that cover the Battle of Dien Bien Phu. I did those because I wanted to take a look at comparative game design in a way that I wasn't seeing anywhere else in a landscape of YouTube videos of unboxings and immobile talking heads in front of cameras. I chose Dien Bien Phu because it seemed like a manageable subject. The battle was fairly defined, the historiography in English was limited, and there weren't that many games about it. I'm very pleased with how it turned out, and I think that the limited scope was a reason for its success. So, of course, why not break all of those rules for the next video series? As long as I've been playing war games, I've had an interest in the Eastern Front of World War II. It was clearly a decisive front, and despite the amount of historical research devoted to it, there is still significant disagreement about what was militarily important and why certain things happened the way they did. This is particularly interesting to me because as someone who was born in Poland, it shaped the following 40 years of history in a way that made World War II a reality of a different kind for an entirely new generation in a way that didn't happen in the West. I've spent many years collecting and reading books on the subject, and it seems like a logical next step to make a war game video series about it. So, that's my next project. It's going to be a bit more open-ended than the DNBN Fu series was because I can hardly expect to make a video about every Eastern Front game there is. Rather, I'm going to try to focus on certain themes, both in historiography and in wargaming, and explain why I'm so fascinated by this horrific period in modern history. Maybe you'll find it interesting too. And that's it for this time. Next time, you know what? I have no idea what I'll have for you next time. Go listen to Harold on Games only waiting for the next Wild Weasel. 
But don't tell him I make fun of him on this podcast, because he'll probably get mad. I hope my copy of Nevsky shows up by then, too. And I one thing I can guarantee you, there will be another episode of Wild Weasel before any reprint of Vance Von Bory's East Front series ships from GMT. That's a fact. Until then, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time for more gaming news, people, and views. This has been Wild Weasel number 17. <laughs>